0: Father, we are thankful that there is the meat of the word in front of us, and we are thankful, Father, that you have provided answers to questions that have troubled us or concerned us, that you are prepared to show us, Father, that not only that the Bible is true, the word of God is to be accepted and trusted, but that it is in fact, Father, the true reflection of science and of the created world and all that we see around us It's not a fairy tale. And thank you, Father, that through your Spirit, we can come to see that clearly and know it. And I pray, Father, that in the teaching this morning, you would be answering questions, even the ones I don't know are in the room, that you would be showing the meaning of the text in a way that answers and addresses the deepest needs in each heart. And allow me, Father, the privilege to simply be your your means of communication. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we got through the first day last week, and I'm not going to take a lot of extra time with it today, but I do want to re, re, kind of rewind just slightly, going back into the first day so that we overlap the two teachings and make sure we cover everything clearly, and then we will move on. So read with me in Genesis 1. We'll start again in chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, just to recap those, and then we'll move forward. So Genesis 1, verse 3, then God said, let there be light, and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning, one day. So as we saw last week, God speaks light into existence. The Word made flesh, the Word of God, doing the work of creation. And as he made the light, God looked upon it and contemplated it. The word saw in Hebrew means to contemplate, to consider. And he considered or saw that it was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness and gave them each names. He gave one day and the other night as the names. We noticed last week that there is light now in the universe, but there is not a source. A celestial source for light has not yet been created. The sun and the moon won't arrive until day four. And yet there is light. So where does it come from? Well, the answer is simple. God. But not merely in the obvious fact that he created it, but it comes from God in the sense that God is light, that as he is perceived into his creation, he is perceived as light. And you can see this for yourself anytime you've studied in Scripture and seen a theophany, uh, an image of God presented to men. It's always a brilliant light. And that is a part of God's nature, a part of his Shekinah glory, we call it. We also noticed last week that the darkness is created. We looked at a, a cross reference out of Job in which God himself declares, or in Isaiah rather, that he declares how he created both light and darkness. Darkness is not merely the absence of light, not at this stage of creation. It is a space without light in it, which is the closest we can come to understanding what darkness means in this case. So God set about to create the world with light and dark as features of the world, even before there was an earth that rotates, a sun that projects light on one side, a moon that shines and reflects the light of the sun from the other side, all of those features are yet to exist, and yet we have light and dark, light and dark, as if there's a big cosmic light switch, and God is just switching it off and on and off and on. And by that fact, we discovered something last week, and I wanted to come back to this part of the the chapter just because I wanted to make sure that this pattern is understood, because it will come up again and again today as we look at the next days of creation. In the first six days of creation, you will see God creating spaces and then at a later time in his week, filling those spaces. So in the first three days, he will create three distinct spaces and in the next three days, he will fill those. I assure you that having that understanding will greatly clarify aspects of the later days that I assure you some people, if not everyone in this room, have some confusion about. Things that we've often pondered about, the way the words in the Hebrew or the translated words of English have confused us. Those confusions suddenly go away when we see this pattern. That's why it's so powerful and so effective. That piece of paper you have in your hand is designed to help you see that pattern. So if you have it in front of you now and you have a pen, or you can steal the one in your neighbor's hands quickly enough, you should be able to write into the first top left block that God has created something that he will later fill. What has he created in this first day? He's created light and he's created darkness. These represent spaces. Remember how he started with matter and energy and then he added light and now light is itself a space. And then that's why he had to create darkness. He had to create the dark space as well. And I realize that as we see the world around us today, what I'm saying is sort of strange to hear because it doesn't square up with what we see today. Everything is in the same space as far as we can tell today, right? The sun is in the same space as the, as the moon and the stars and, and our planet, for that matter. And so how can there be a light and a dark space? It's all one space. Well, that's because you're, you're looking at the world on day six. You didn't see it on day one. And on day one, the features you just described or I just described don't exist yet. All we have is a light space and a dark space separated. And remember last week we said they're separated not by physical Uh, location but by time so for a moment the space is filled with light and then at another moment that light is taken away and it's filled with darkness and that on and off again pattern becomes the passage of time that's how God begins to mark time the other thing we noticed last week that was equally interesting and equally important to understanding creation is that God has two times in his plan for the creation for what we understand is the physical creation. There's two times in which God makes a heavens and an earth. He's done it here once. He's in the process of doing it the first time as we read it here. But there will be a new heavens and earth created in the future. He starts over again. What's interesting about that is you would assume, because God never makes a mistake, that if he creates everything once a certain way, and then comes back around later and creates it a second time around, he should do it exactly the same way twice, right? I mean, if it was good enough the first time, why would he need to improve upon it? Wouldn't he have known the best way to do it the first time? But he doesn't do that, does he? If you know the Bible, if you know Revelation 21 and 22, you know that there is a new heavens and new earth that is fundamentally, strikingly different in design than the one he creates the first time. Now, as a good Bible student, what should that drive us to do? What should be the next thought in our head when we discover something like that in Scripture? Why? Best way to become a good Bible student? Use that question a lot. Don't take for granted just what it says. Ask the next question. Why? Why did he do it that way and not another way? When you learn the answers to those why questions, you start to get deep into the understanding of God's Word. In Revelation 21-25, we hear this about the future earth that he creates. He says, In that uh, future time, John writes that in the daytime, for there will be no night there, its gates will never be closed. There is a future world coming, which we will inhabit with Christ, where we will never see night again. So if God has determined that he does not need darkness in this eternal order, in this new heavens and new earth, why did he include it in the first earth? If it's better then to have no dark, why is it okay to have it now? Well, We've said already, this is going back to last week, that the Bible shows how God has consistently linked the idea of light or dark to two other thoughts, good and evil. Light is often a picture of good and dark is often a picture of evil in the Bible. And I read several last week. Let me just read one back to you again today from Job 30, verse 26. When I expected good, then evil came. When I waited for light, then darkness came. You can see how Job associates the two in that metaphor. In in Isaiah, Isaiah says in chapter 9, verse 2, The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine upon them. Who is he talking about? Christ. Christ coming to light the world, just as John says in chapter 1. He was the light of the world, but the, the darkness did not receive him. You see how John used those same metaphors? It's all over the Bible. All over the Bible. Would we have those metaphors if God had never created darkness in this world? It begs the question, which came first? The idea that light and dark would become metaphors for good and evil? Or that we saw light and dark as useful once we discovered good and evil and made them metaphors after the fact? No, from God's point of view, He knew evil was coming. He knew it was going to come into this world he built the world as it is anticipating that men once they knew evil would be helped would be would be uh, it would be a kind of grace to them if he could bring them a better understanding a better picture of how light and dark are different how there is no way to mix the two how one will always do away with the other light chases away the dark the dark overpowers the light how one is useful to expose sin and reveal glory while the other provides opportunity for sin and produces despair. I don't think there's any coincidence, by the way, that most people who have a challenge with sin in their life find that challenge greatest at night. Think about it. How many people's particular sins, whatever those sins might be, show themselves most frequently and most powerfully at night? I don't think that's a coincidence. They serve as powerful metaphors for good and evil and they are there because God anticipated and planned for the entry of sin into his creation and he made some accommodation for it right from the beginning. But in the new heavens and new earth, we will no longer have dark because we will no longer have sin and we will no longer have evil. Once the reality of good and evil is done away with and all there is is good, then the need for the metaphor goes away too. And so he doesn't design the world with that metaphor in it any longer. That's how far ahead God was looking as he built this world, knowing exactly what was coming next. Revelation 21.4, John says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, and no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Those first things include sin and death and crying and mourning, but they also include the world that we have, and the darkness that's a part of it. Those things will pass away. So to conclude, day one, there was light and there was darkness. It was separated in terms of time so that we would have this night-dark cycle back and forth. That's how it's separated. That's how we can count time, and that's how God is able to say one day. Literally, a time period of darkness followed by a time period of light. That's a day. And did you notice the order? Which comes first? How is it spoken in scripture? Look at the scripture. There was evening. There was morning. One day. Dark first, then night. Sin comes, then glory follows. First sin, then redemption. But more importantly, or, or equally importantly, this is why the Jews count their days starting at nightfall. Because they count them from the order of how God is shown in creating the first day. Night first, then day. So the Jewish day begins at sundown and goes until the next sundown. So far, we have matter, energy, light, and time, day one. Now, this offers offers an opportunity for us to examine another theory of creation. We remember last week we talked about a theory. We talked about the theory last week of the gap theory, which I will not repeat today for the sake of time. But that was the just in summary, that was a theory that some have have seen in Scripture, believe that they find evidence for in Scripture, and they propose that there's a long period of time in God's economy of time present between Genesis 1-1 and Genesis 1-2. And they say that long period of time is the time between when God first made the world, Satan fell, and the world was destroyed because of Satan's sin, and then he remade the world starting in verse 2. We sometimes call that the recreation theory. And I said last week that I dismiss that theory on many, for many reasons, several I listed in the room, I know, but the summary of it all is it's not the natural reading of the text. The only reason you even think to include something like that is because you are looking for time. You need time. You want there to be a long period of time somewhere in God's plan. You're desperately searching for it because you've believed that science has proven the world is old. And because you're so convinced that the world is billions of years old and you feel like a fool suggesting that it's not, you go to the Scriptures and you don't see billions of years. You see six days. And so you ask yourself, where are the billions of years? Maybe they're between verse 1 and 2. That's where they are. You see my point? The need didn't come from the text. The need came outside the text. It came from the world and its teaching And it impressed itself upon some Christians who then went to the text and said, I think I know where I can find billions of years in God's word. But if I had never come along or anyone had ever come along and suggested that the earth was anything older than what the Bible says, you would never think to look for billions of years. You would never think to propose a gap theory. It's the problem of filtering the Bible through eyes of the world versus filtering the world with eyes from the Bible. It's exactly that problem in a nutshell. Now, that was one theory. Here's the second one. It shows up at this point at the end of day one. We call it the day age theory. The day age theory proposes that each day in the creation, each of these six days, is not literally 24 hours. That really, when God says one day has passed, for example, at the end of verse five, it's really a long period of time that the word in Hebrew, yom, which is Most commonly translated day can on occasion be translated to mean a period of time, like in the day of the Lord. And in that example, that is the right way to translate it. The day of the Lord does not refer to a day. It refers to a period of time. So they look at this and they say, well, these aren't literal days. These are periods of time. And guess how long they propose that these periods of time are millions and millions of years. So the first day is millions and millions of years long. The second day is another millions and millions of years long. Each of these are ages, the day-age theory. Now, the answer here to why that theory would emerge out of the text is exactly the same answer as to why the gap theory ever emerged onto the scene, ever showed up. Because if I have a need for billions of years... I've got to figure out where to find it in the text to fit it into the text. Now, I want to keep saying this because I don't want anyone to think I'm, I'm not going to address it or that I'm unwilling to address it. When we have that four or five hour seminar on evolution, we will then address all the conversations about how rocks are dated and the dinosaurs and the geologic column and really just how do they know how old the earth is. We will go through all of that in painstaking detail. And you know me, you know I can be painstaking. Okay? Okay. <laughs> I am not prepared to do that here because we are not here to study evolution. We are here to study the Bible. But we will set up the proper opportunity for us to look at the other. Okay, So just so you know, it's not being put aside. It is going to be addressed. Now, the history on this theory is very simple. In the 19th century, the scientific establishment began to propose that the earth was not young, but that it was actually very, very old. Billions of years old. That idea did not originate until the 19th century. Okay, And as men... Secular, unbelieving scientists in the 19th century began to propose this idea and to push this idea. By the way, that idea came before we had any ability to date anything. The idea that the world was billions of years old predates carbon dating, rock dating, any of the things, DNA, any of that kind of stuff that we look at today. The idea and the premise and the belief in it preexisted, predates all of those things. Christians began to be taught that that idea was so sensible and so literally obvious, look around, it looks old, it must be old, that they began to believe that you have to trust the scientists, they know what they're doing, and so when we look at the text of Scripture, I have to figure out a way to kind of work the Scripture until I can work it to a place where I see inside of it millions of years. Billions of years. So if the world is billions of years old, Christians ask themselves, if it is billions of years old, how do I understand Genesis chapter 1? Some said it's a myth. It's just a story. It's just allegory. It wasn't meant to be literal. Don't try to make it literal. Others were more interested in a literal interpretation, and so they said, no, I do believe this is literal, but I still have to understand where billions of years come in, and so they proposed the day-age theory. What is the biblical response? Well, the word day, yom, yom, appears 2,267 times in the Bible. Only nine times out of 2,267 times is it ever used in any way other than a 24-hour day. Evening, Ereb in the Hebrew, and morning, Boker in the Hebrew, are also literal terms that always mean 12-hour periods of light and dark. They're never used any other way in the Bible except... 12-hour periods of light and dark. So in chapter 1, verse 5, you have him say, there was an evening, 12 hours. There was a morning, 12 hours. One yom, a day. So by any reasonable interpretation of the text, every word that's being used there in the Hebrew is classically, traditionally, and almost always translated to mean literal 24-hour days. Now, the second thing to understand is the author... Moses in the human form, but obviously the spirit of God, ultimately. He could have used any word he wanted here if he wanted to communicate to us that we were actually looking at long periods of time. Those words did exist in Hebrew. It's not as though he had no choice. And the golden rule of interpretation, this is the rule that every biblical scholar uses when they approach the text of Scripture, is that you use the literal, ordinary, and primary meaning of any word when there is no contextual basis to do otherwise. If there's nothing in the text to suggest a metaphoric or symbolic meaning, you never run to that meaning instead of the literal meaning. You stay with the literal unless the context dictates to do otherwise. So what cross-references do we have in the Bible as we look at this? In Exodus chapter 20, verse 8, look at what God says about the Sabbath. He says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall do no labor, or you shall do labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall, do, you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or your female servant, or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. And here's his reason why. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Now, The rationale for a Sabbath day in the Jewish law would make no sense whatsoever. It would be a completely nonsensical reason if these were not literal days, but rather they were long ages of millions of years. Because what God just said is, for in six days I did my work and rested on the seventh, therefore you do the same. But if a day is millions of years, what? how long are we supposed to rest? How long are we supposed to rest, and then how long are we supposed to work? We're supposed to work for six periods of millions of years, and then we can rest? Second Peter is often a place people go when they try to prove the day-age theory. So let me give you one piece of suggested proof that they would offer. They would point to 2 Peter 3.8, where Peter, as you may know, teaches that to the Lord a day is like a thousand years. He's not slow about his promises, is the point. And they would suggest that, well, you see... The Bible teaches that from God's point of view, when he, even though he said the word day, it's a long period of time to him. Well, uh, first of all, he said a day is a thousand years. So if I'm really going to believe that what Peter is trying to teach is that when God says day, he means something else, then what Peter tells us he means is a thousand years. Well, guess what? I can't get what I need out of 6,000 years if that's what uh, the, the real creation story results in. If the theory of evolution needs billions of years, the best I get out of Peter's quote is 6,000. Oh, no, Steve, he just means a day can be like a lot. Oh, well, that's convenient, isn't it? Suddenly, what Peter says can be taken any way we want it to be. Well, there's only two ways to take what Peter said. Either he's being literal or he's not. He's not being literal in the sense that God considers a day to be a 1,000 years. He's being metaphoric. But what he is saying is, God is not slow about his promises. For God, there is no time. There's no such thing as slowness. There's no such thing as changing his mind. There's no such thing as him having one idea one day and a different idea the next day. There's no time for God. That's how we can be sure of his promises. Peter is not trying to teach us about the nature of creation or how long it was that God used to create the earth. That's clear enough as well by the context of Peter. So let's move on. We'll come back to the day-age theory. We'll actually come back to the gap theory again when we talk about evolution a little bit. But I wanted to give you some idea of where those come from even today. But understand, we've gone through one 24-hour period as God times it using his method of timing, the light and dark cycle. Let's go to the next day, and we'll begin to uh, create the next space, or God will begin to create the next space. Verses 6 through 8. Then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters, and let it separate the waters from the waters. God made the expanse and separated the waters which were below the expanse from the waters which were above the expanse, and it was so. God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning, a second day. Let's take this apart. And this is the first opportunity I have to show you how your chart is going to make sense of what you just read with me. Starting with what he says, waters. Waters below, he says, the expanse. And then waters above, the expanse. The word therefore, expanse... Is Shamayim. Uh, or expanse, I'm sorry, means expanse. So I, I got that backwards. The word for heaven is Shamayim. You have waters, in verse 6, uh, separated by an expanse, and then in the midst of the waters, the waters are separated into two bodies. See, so I want you to just start imagining this with me. Two bodies of water, one above, one below, an expanse between them. And then he starts talking about heaven. In verse 7, he says, uh, no, in verse 8, God called the expanse heaven. Shamayim. What heavens are we talking about? Well, remember, first, we're talking about spaces that are going to be filled. And I'm going to show you the trick to understanding the pattern. Go with me to day four in your Bibles. Just look ahead a few verses. Day four. What gets created on day four? I said it already this morning, sun, moon, stars. So what space did the sun, moon, and stars fill from the earlier part of the, of the week? The light and the dark. So we can start to see, and my chart actually sort of alludes to this or suggests this, that from left to right you have the create and fill pairings. So if light and dark is paired with sun, moon, and stars, and now I'm looking at the next lying down. I'm looking at day two and I'm trying to figure out what is he creating? What are these spaces he's creating? Well, if I jump forward and I look at day five and see what gets put into the space, it'll make it a lot easier for me to understand what this space is, won't it? And if I jump forward to day five, what is he putting in day five? Birds in the air, fish in the sea, two bodies of water. The problem is we don't think of our atmosphere as water, and yet there is more water in our atmosphere than there is in our oceans, scientists tell us. There's more water suspended in the air than there is water filling the oceans. So he has taken the water that constituted the beginnings of matter for this earth, the water that he's using now, the matter that he's using now is water, obviously, because the text identifies it as water in verse 6. And the waters are separated. So the, the obvious answer is he starts with a body of water and he separates the body of water. But he also changes the form of it in at least the sense that he makes one of it atmospheric, a gas, and the other one a liquid. Water in gas form, or H2O in gas form, is still H2O. No less so than when it's in liquid form. So he has created two spaces made effectively of water, And he has now separated them with something that in between he calls heaven, Shamayim. How can that work? When you first see this, you ask yourself, well, how can can God's heaven live between the atmosphere and the oceans? Well, this is where the language of Hebrew starts to fail us if we don't understand it very well. In Hebrew, there is one word to describe outer space, there's a word to describe the atmosphere. Of this world where the birds fly, and there's a word to describe God's throne room. It's the same word for all three. Heaven. Shamayim. God's throne room? Shamayim. Outer space where the moon, sun, and stars are? Shamayim. The space above our heads where birds fly? Shamayim. Well, Steve, that's going to be awful confusing when we're trying to talk about heaven. How are they going to know which one we're talking about? Well, the Hebrew Jews figured this out too. So they created a convention. First heaven, second heaven, third heaven. First heaven is, what do you think? Where the birds fly. Second heaven, outer space. Third heaven is where God is. That's how Paul, when he talks about how he was caught up to the third heaven and saw visions that no man can speak about in Second Corinthians, that's his way of identifying which heaven he went to. He went to God's throne room. So here in the Bible, how do I know which Shamayim we're talking about since the writer of Genesis 1 doesn't use 1st, 2nd, and 3rd heaven? I guess they haven't created that by the time Moses wrote this. He just uses the word heaven. Well, the answer is probably pretty obvious. You just look at the context. For example, in chapter 1, verses 6, 7, and 8, when he says, "...let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters," to separate these waters from some above and some below, and then between them is an expanse called heaven. Well, is there? Wa- are there bodies of water floating around in outer space? Not that we know of, not like this, not in this sense. So this can't be talking about outer space. Do we hear about bodies of water in God's throne room? That doesn't make any sense. That only leaves us with one heaven. This is the atmospheric heavens of the earth itself that we're talking about. So that, And then, of course, when I jump to day five and I see God putting birds and fish into those spaces, it confirms for me that's what I'm looking at here. So this is the time, so the order of creation was light and dark as spaces, then atmosphere and water bodies as spaces. Now in Revelation chapter 21, looking forward in time now to the new heavens and new earth, there's something interesting about that time that relates to this day of creation. John writes, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth For the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. In the new heavens and new earth, we don't have bodies of water anymore. There's no sea anymore. Going back to the earlier question that I asked when we looked at the lack of darkness in the new heavens and new earth, why, if it was good to have it the first time, do we not need it anymore? I've had people tell me, well, Steve, I love to get on boats, and I love to fish, and and I love the beach. Are you telling me there's no more of that? Yes, but I also have to believe that whatever comes in its place makes us forget all about those other things, right? What is God doing? Why is he taking the sea away then in the new heavens and new earth? If we knew that when the light and the dark changed to just light, that that meant that there was a metaphor being changed, there was a lesson in that change, well then of course as a good Bible student, when we come to this day, we do that same thing again, we ask why And we should be looking for some deeper meaning. What is the sea, then, a metaphor for? What's it picturing that we no longer need in the new heavens and new earth? Well, in Scripture, the word sea in the Old Testament is often tehom, which literally is deep or abyss. And it's often a synonym for going into the grave or going into death or even going into Sheol, the holding place of the dead in the Old Testament. Jonah, for example, remember when we studied Jonah, Jonah, when he was in the moment of being in the belly and he thought he was dead, He remember we thought he was actually dying in the fish, he didn't realize he was just in a fish? Because last time he saw the world was when he jumped into the water, into the deep, into the Tejon. And next thing he knows, he's in a slimy, smelly, hot, sticky place and he just imagines he's died and now he's in his new experience after death. And as he talks about that experience, he says, water encompassed me to the point of death, The great tehom, the great deep, the great sea, engulfed me, weeds were wrapped around my head. He talks as, he starts to mix the two. Death and the deep are synonymous with going into deep waters. In Genesis, later in Genesis, in chapter 49, when Jacob is blessing his sons, we hear this in chapter 49, verse 25. From the God of your Father who helps you and by the Almighty who blesses you with blessings of heaven above, blessings of the deep that lies beneath, tehom, blessings of the breasts and of the womb. What was the contrast there? Blessings of heaven and blessings from the deep. The sea is a picture or a metaphor of the depths of death and the abyss and the holding place of the dead. In fact, as I said, the word for abyss and deep is the same word in Hebrew. But in the new heavens and new earth, there is no more death, we're told. So I don't need a sea whose principal reason to exist in the creation was to picture death and the depths of the, of the underworld, of going to death. With that now no longer part of the human experience, well, then I certainly don't need the metaphor anymore. So that becomes the change God will do in the future. So that is the evening, morning, and second day. And so now you could fill in your chart if you haven't already. What gets created? Atmosphere and sea. And believe it or not, we're going to hit a third day. Genesis chapter 1, verse 9. Then God said, let the waters below the heavens be gathered into one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth and the gathering of the waters he called seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants, yielding seed, and fruit trees on the earth bearing fruit after their kind, with seed in them, and it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed after their kind, and trees bearing fruit with seed in them after their kind, and God saw that it was good. There was evening and there was morning a third day. Well, let's start with the first part there of the waters. The waters are being gathered, and they're they're gathered together into into whole body, a whole body here called sea. I want you to notice how it is gathered. What does it say? In verse 9, they were gathered, how? Into one place, one place. What does it say about the land then? Imagine a globe, imagine your your mind here, in your mind, uh, you know, the globes we have at home that we spin. Do we have all the the water that's on that globe gathered into one place right now? No, in fact, we have all these different seas and oceans and so on, bodies of water, give them names because they're all separated out. What separates the water from itself? Land. But if there is no separation of the waters in this early stage, as he's developed it now, as he's put it all together, all the water's in one place. What does that say about the land? He says land has appeared. Didn't describe it yet, but what can we know? What does geometry tell us has to be true about the land if all the water is in one place? All the land has to be in one place. One continent. One gigantic piece of land on the globe, all the water in the other side, wherever there isn't land. That's the only way you get there geometrically, or in terms of geometry. That's the only way you can create that outcome on a globe. You know, what's interesting is, geologists will tell tell us, based on what they can observe in the world, that the continents appear to be moving on the plates of the earth. And if you look at a map of the earth, in fact, you can see really without much trouble at all how the continents look like pieces of a puzzle that have been pulled apart, don't they? You can imagine very easily if I just scrunched everything back together, it would all kind of just sink right up, wouldn't it? Now, to those who don't believe the Bible, their analysis of that fact is the world is billions of years old, millions and billions, because... It took billions of years for those things to just tick, 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 because they're only moving a little bit a year right now, and if we just do the math, calculate backward, billions of years. I want you to know that out of the book that you have in front of you, God tells you in his own word they are right about how things looked at the beginning. You're not having to confront science and tell them that they're wrong when they tell you that all the continents started together. You can absolutely affirm that. Out of scripture, you can affirm that fact. But what does not follow automatically is what happened next. What happened after this moment has not yet been addressed in the text. We'll get there later in the book of Genesis. But that's where truth diverges from the way science proposes things. They may have a nugget of truth, they may have the right beginning point, but then they go wrong and what they say happens next. So just be understanding that you do not have to reject everything that's being proposed by the scientific world, you just have to reject the parts that aren't in agreement with the Bible. But if this is true, if this really is true, if God really did do this, if this is not myth and story, if this is literally what happened, then it has to agree with what we can measure and see scientifically because God is the author of science every bit as much as he is the author of everything else. But be careful what you assume is scientific. Because a guy with a white coat and a name tag on in a, in a, in a, in a lab somewhere tells you something or writes it down in a journal does not automatically make it true. And just because they put a white coat on doesn't mean they have your best interests at heart or that they're fully objective and they have no biases. You see my point? So we can understand science in light of the scripture and not throw out everything. With a few minutes, and I do want to cover a couple of things before we finish this day, I want you to look at what he does here on the land itself. Here's where this chart comes back again to being incredibly helpful in helping us see what God is really up to here. What is he involved doing here on, a, on day three? Is he... Which which phase of of creation is he in? According to my chart, in day three, what phase is he in? He's creating what? A space or or filling it? He's, He's still in the space creating process right now. He is not trying to fill anything yet. And yet, look at what's on the land. Trees, plants, vegetation of all kinds. Is that part of the filling process or just the creating process? Based on the pattern we see, it's only the creating process. Folks, the plants do not exist for themselves. The plants of this world, the, 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 the things that now are so important to so many people, the green movement and all that goes with it, and I certainly am, am very respectful of the desire to conserve and to be good stewards, and all of that is a very uh, biblically sound way to view our, our world. But at the end of the day, and at the end of the analysis... Are the plants here for us, or are we here for the plants? According to the order and the manner of creation, they are part of the space that something else is supposed to fill. They are not the point in and of itself. They are the means to something else. They are not here for their own sake. They are just like the water, and just like the atmosphere, and the light, and the dark. They are preparation spaces that then are needed for something that will come along later and fill it. Now, what needs them? What is the end purpose of these things then? Well, look at how they're created. The vegetation appears instantly on day three. Instantly. And it's notable. They have seeds. The trees already have fruit. They're not being created as seedlings in the ground. God didn't say, you know what, I need a world full of plants, so let me just seed it with a bunch of seeds and, you know, give a few... 10 or 20 years we'll have a nice big green planet he said i want a tree bam, tree i want it with fruit bam fruit i want it with seeds which suggests they've come to maturity and they're ready to start another cycle of planning right they're right there at that point of maturity he created what he created with the appearance of age with the appearance of age If you walked up to one of the trees that he had created on this day, we we are on day three, folks. If you've got a calendar on you, you're on day three. And I'm putting you in the world on day three. And you're walking around this world. You see seas, you see land, you see air above you, you see plants and trees on the ground. I give you an axe and I say, go cut that tree down. And so you do. You cut it down and it's on the ground and you look at it. And I say, how old is that tree? What are you going to do? You're going to count the rings, aren't you? How many rings are there in that tree? He could very well have easily created it with lots and lots of rings, right? And you're going to count the rings and you're going to say, that's a 40-year-old tree. How old is the tree? One day old. One day old. It's a one-day-old tree created with the appearance of age. Can God do that? He did do that. Why? Why? Remember the why question? If you don't go to the why question, you don't get the real answer of what you're saying. Why? It's a space. It's intended to be filled. How many days are going to go by before it's filled? We got two more days. On the third day after that, it's going to be filled. What's it going to be filled with? Well, among other things, Adam. You think he might get hungry? What's he going to eat? The fruit? Why is God putting a tree on the ground on day three with fruit on it already? Because he knows Adam is coming. What's the reason then that there are trees on the ground? What's the reason there is land and water and air? Why is all of this being created? The order and the manner tells the story, doesn't it? It's so that we will see the architect of this plan has an end purpose in mind. And that end purpose is the perfect place for Adam to live ready and waiting for him on day one, on day six, with him, his day one, day six, with food that he can pull off the tree the moment he gets onto the earth. All of it with the appearance of age. Now, if I had created Darwin on day six and put him there with Adam, and I'd ask Darwin how old everything is, absent God's word, all he has to go by is what his eyes tell him. And so he starts doing what a scientist would do, measure, examine, catalog, And he comes back and says, well, based on those rocks, it looks like millions of years. Based on that tree, it's at least 40 years old. Well, based on the word, it's six days old. If God can create it at all, he can create it with those things in mind, with those facets, those attributes. And if he does, it completely negates the ability for the creation to date itself. Because we can't look outside of what we have which itself was created in an instant with its appearance of age. Now, all dating methods go out the window because I have no baseline. I have no reference point. Everything is just what it is. But if I don't believe this, that doesn't stop me. I keep trying. Lastly, to end today, notice that the vegetation exists prior to the sun. And yet, we know today that without the sun, vegetation won't live. We're going to come back into this day next week and lose uh, actually quite a bit more on this day to cover before we're done. Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, as always, for making things so clear in your word, so obvious at times after we've perhaps taken time to study it in depth and and come away, Father, with a full understanding. It's, It's so clear and so direct and such a blessing that we could see it this way. Father, forgive us for our doubts. Forgive us, Father, that we have been so quick to dismiss what this word says and accept what the world would teach us at times. If we are still struggling, Father, with the, with the prospect that this is literally true, if it's still something that we're wrestling with, that's okay, isn't it, Father? You know that we have those doubts and you know that it takes time, but you also call us, Father, to trust and have faith and to rely on you, so I pray, Father, that you would take our doubts away, show us that this is true, supernaturally, by your Spirit, Father, speak to the hearts of anyone in here who is still at odds with what your book says, with what your own word says, let them see it with new eyes, with spiritual eyes, and Father, I do pray you continue to bless us with the opportunity to study this book, bring us all back next week, I pray, Father, bring all those who would be here but couldn't. And I would also pray, Father, that there is someone and perhaps many who would uh, join us if you would permit them. And I pray you would open the doors for that to happen. And uh, let us be good ministers of the gospel in our own walk this week and bring us back. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.